from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. Democrats, Republicans, independents, all by a majority, support a bold plan and support going through reconciliation if we have to. That was Senator Chuck Schumer yesterday saying there is bipartisan support somewhere for another almost $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill. The question is, if there is bipartisan support in Congress, why are the Democrats using the budget reconciliation process that only requires 51 votes to pass? We'll talk about it with South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds, who was among the 10 Republicans who met with President Biden earlier this week. And the North Carolina lieutenant governor, who is opposed to the use of critical race theory in the state's new social studies curriculum, is outraged that WRAL.com, owned by Capital Broadcasting, depicted him as a Ku Klux Klansman in an editorial cartoon. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson is black. He's also a Republican. And he's here to talk about his objections later on Washington Watch. And while the Southern Southern Impoverished Law Center was silent most of last year as leftists looted and burned cities across America... They are now out with their list of recommendations to the Biden administration on how to combat extremist groups on the right. Tyler O'Neill of PJ Media, who has written the book on SPLC, is here with more. And a church in California is facing $1 million in fines. For what? For meeting. Pastor Mike McClure joins us with the latest on their fight against the restrictive measures of California Governor Gavin Newsom. And could a pending Supreme Court decision come to the defense of churches that have been under barrage of government overreach? If so, it is coming none too soon, based upon appointments by the Biden administration at the Department of Justice. I'll talk with FRC's Katherine Johnson, research fellow for legal and policy studies, later on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. You can find archived copies of uh, archived versions of the Washington Watch program. If you miss anything on your way home, it's all right there at TonyPerkins.com. Join us tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, for this week's edition of Pray, Vote, Stand. I'll be joined by Colorado Congressman Ken Buck and California Pastor Dr. Jim Garlow. Uh, We'll be looking at uh, the proposed security measures around the Capitol and what that means, and we'll be praying for our nation as we go forward. Again, that's 8 p.m. Eastern Time, prayvotestand.org. All right, after meeting with 10 Republican senators on Monday who proposed a scaled-down, targeted coronavirus relief bill, it now appears that President Biden and congressional Democrats will go it alone with a massive $1.9 trillion blue state bailout via the budget reconciliation process. President Biden spoke about the need for Congress to respond boldly and quickly. He was very strong in emphasizing the need for a big, bold package. He said that he told Senate Republicans that the $600 billion that they proposed was way too small. I think it it is his belief, it is Secretary Yellen's belief, it is our belief. If we did a package that small, we'd be mired in the COVID crisis for years. Instead, we'll be mired in debt for years. Joining me now to talk more about Monday's meeting and the budget reconciliation the Democrats are pushing through is U.S. Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. He is also a member of the Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. Senator, welcome to the program. Thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Well, Senator, um, tell us about Monday's meeting with the president. President Biden was cordial. Uh, He was polite. He clearly had uh, worked at uh, becoming knowledgeable of what their proposals were. He listened. Uh, It was a good, uh, very uh, friendly discussion. We had the opportunity to lay out uh, sequence by sequence uh, the different portions of our proposal and the reasoning behind our proposal. Uh, He did not uh, uh, come down from any of his proposals or anything like that at all, but it gave us an opportunity to listen to what he wanted and at the same time to point out the differences that we saw and to point out that in many cases um, we thought we had a better proposal than they did because ours was targeted mm-hmm. and specific, and we really were really concerned about – I mean – this president will probably be the first president to see 30 
trillion dollars in debt in his first year in office. That's that's trillion with a T. And it, it, it's not going down from there. It continues to move up. And at the same time, we had some agreements on some areas. When it came to additional assistance for uh, uh, the vaccines and so forth, we didn't disagree. We know we want to make sure we have adequate vaccines for everyone in this country. We wanted to make sure that we had adequate testing. And if they found shortages in that area, we are more than willing to work with them. Where we disagreed was that we didn't think that you should further enhance unemployment benefits above $300 a week in addition to state benefits uh, beyond June 30th. And we did that because we think a lot of folks really need to get back to work. And under the existing original proposal they had had way back in July, a person in South Dakota could literally make over – a husband and wife could make over $90,000 a year on unemployment benefits. That's not a good incentive to try to stay connected with your employer. No, not at all. And then when you add to that the bailout of the uh, what I say the, the blue states, the mismanaged states that have closed down their economies, there's no incentive here for not just the workers to get back to uh, to business, but for state leaders to pave the way for businesses to open back up. No question, but that you can open schools and do it safely. You can keep businesses open, but use some God-given common sense. Uh, you know, it, look, I, I, I'm one of the guys, I tell people, wear your mask, but keep your business open. Um, yeah. uh, you, you can do separation. And in South Dakota, we've done that successfully. Um, and, and part of the program there was if you had a business that was shut down, the PPP, the, 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 the payroll prote- or the paycheck protection plan, we put some additional funds into that to make sure that those businesses that were shut down, that they could afford to keep their employees on staff with them and to keep their health insurance and so forth in place. We thought that was all very reasonable. What we didn't like was simply providing an additional incentive, a stimulus incentive that, well, in many cases, we thought that they went way above in terms of the salary range that should be entitled to a stimulus check. In fact, I shared with them as a, as a member of the United States Senate, I was very surprised when I got home to find out that because of my adjusted gross income, I qualified for a stimulus check. Gene and I qualified for a $1,200 stimulus check. And I said, that's not what I think the president had in mind, and I don't think that's what most Americans thought was someone with a, the, the, you know, the salary of a United States senator should somehow then be eligible for right. a stimulus check. Well, I think that's where I commend you and your your colleagues for a targeted approach. I mean, when you I think we've lost sight of how much money we're actually spending on this over the last year as we've had one relief package after another. And we get into, you know, the trillions of dollars. We I think we just lose sight of the amount of debt that we are building up as a result of this. I'm not opposed to helping. I was I was I, was, I supported the first paycheck protection plan to get out there to keep uh, you know, to, to keep the engine idling on our economy. But at some point, we've got to look at the policies that these states are pushing, putting in place. We can't do this forever. Precisely. And, and right now, what, what we see going on is, is we think this economy right now will rebuild at, in, in excess of 4% growth this year. Look, that's, that's a pretty good growth cycle to begin right. with. Yes, it is. And, and, and what, what it appears is, is that some of the dollars that would go into a $1.9 trillion program would probably not be spent, but it could very well turn into a slush fund. Yes, yes. So um, it, it, it does not appear that the, uh, the president is, is taking under consideration or he's, he's moving on with uh, the comments based upon, uh, based upon the comments of uh, Senator Schumer, that they're going to use the reconciliation process. Although I've heard you know, comments from uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia that he too supports a more targeted approach. Is there any optimism that this might be scaled down in the budget reconciliation process? There may be some minor scale downs uh, based on what the president has indicated to take into account some of the things that we pointed out. But I'm afraid they're still talking uh, talking about a very, very large 
uh, proposal, much closer to the 1.9 as opposed to the 600 billion that even the 10 of us had proposed as an alternative. And, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to be there was we understand that if we're not at the table, we might very well find ourselves on the menu. And we felt it was more appropriate to come in and to try to participate and to be a part of a solution rather than uh, having things done to a large part of the country that might not be acceptable. And well, I think I think they have an appetite more for pork than senator, <laughs> so, based upon this latest uh, bill. Um, it, I, I do think it, it is positive that this early on that the, 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 the president did at least sit down with uh, Republican members of the Senate. My, my concern with a bill this big. I mean, this is big, as you pointed out. That's with a T, trillion, $1.9 trillion. That this is really a pace setter for what we might see in this administration. And, 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 and Senator Rounds, I, I think you would agree that some problems we face, dollars alone won't fix them. You are correct. But let me just put that $1.9 trillion in perspective. If you look at what Congress normally votes on for all of the defense budget, and all of what we call the non-defense discretionary, which is the, the operation of the rest of the traditional part of government, we would spend perhaps $1.4 trillion in a year. This supplemental is $1.9 trillion, a half a trillion dollar more, specifically for what they identify as pandemic relief, in addition to the $900 billion we just passed in December, the vast majority of which has not even hit the economy yet. Exactly. It's in the pipeline. Yeah. That astounding. Um, I do hope that uh, maybe through this reconciliation process, as the debate uh, goes on here in the next two days, that there, there might be some scaling down to this. But I think you're right. I don't think it'll get down to where it's a, anywhere close to what you and your colleagues proposed. I don't think it will at this point, and I think part of this is an exercise in, in force to try to say we have won the majority in the House. We have the presidency. Uh, they're going to tell us that elections matter and that at 50-50 with the vice president, they're breaking the vote or they're breaking the tie, and uh, they're going to accomplish as much as they possibly can before they are turned out of office in 2022. Well, I think it it, uh, it certainly will happen. I recall back in 2009 when they pushed Obamacare through when uh, President Obama had the majority in both the House and the Senate. And 2010 brought a real wake-up call based upon the policies they had pushed through. Correct. Well, and maybe we'll see that again. Senator Mike Rounds, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and uh, bringing us up to date on your meeting with the president. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, great place to be during pheasant season. I love South Dakota and pheasant hunting. All right, coming up next, we'll talk with the lieutenant governor of North Carolina, who um, was not happy about a local media outlet that depicted him as a Klansman. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson happens to be a black lieutenant governor. We're going to talk with him next about why he opposes the critical race theory in the school in the school board's uh, state school board's new curriculum for social studies. That's next. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. 
In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. So good to have you with us. All right, we've been talking uh, a lot about uh, different school districts that are uh, pushing this critical race theory uh, as a part of the curriculum. Well, in North Carolina, uh, there is currently, in fact, I think the vote takes place this week on the um, Board of Education of new standards that would include critical race theory. Well, the lieutenant governor of North Carolina has spoken out about this. He happens to be a conservative Republican, and he said we should not be teaching these things in, uh, you know, to, to really taint the minds of kids and turn them to be uh, un-American or anti-American. Well, uh, his, res- his uh, outspoken criticism of this led to an editorial cartoon published by the uh, WRAL.com, owned by Capital Broadcasting, depicting him as a Ku Klux Klansman. Now, it just so happens that Lieutenant Governor uh, Mark Robinson is the first um, black lieutenant governor elected in the state of North Carolina. Uh, and he joins us now by phone. Lieutenant Governor, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely, sir. Thank you for joining us. Um, There's two things I want to talk about. One, I want to talk about this curriculum because you have very accurately assessed it as uh, poisoning the minds of kids to turn them anti-American. And so I want you to address that. But then I want to go to this double standard of how a media outlet in North Carolina could portray you as a Klansman and get away with it. Well, on the first issue, what we're talking about here is not necessarily the curriculum. What we're talking about is the standards, and the standards set the stage more or less for the curriculum. And uh, my major objection to the standards is the actual tone. Uh, one of my colleagues on the board today did a fantastic job of describing why the, the, the standards are of a poor tone or anti-American tone when he said that they're, if you look at them in their totality, it's more like if you gave them a title, it'd be like calling them 50 Reasons Why the United States of America is Terrible. Um, it's very, very, uh, it's anti, it's sliding towards anti-Americanism. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it, it would be one thing if I thought that uh, school systems would be fair in their, in their application of these standards. But I, I'm going to be quite frank with you. I do not believe that's going to happen. I don't believe that that's happening. 
now in our school system. Uh, our school systems right now are, are very slanted, uh, and they talk about inclusion a lot. But oftentimes, conservative voices are silent, pushed out, not allowed. And, um, and so uh, we want to have standards that our children learn by that, number one, are going to teach real history. And when we talk about real history, we are talking about teaching everything. Right. As they say, warts and all. We're not trying to hide anything from students. We're not trying to disavow slavery. We're not trying to disavow any of the terrible things that have happened in this nation. But the point we're trying to get across is this, is that children need to understand that the things we want to teach children, while we're teaching them about those bad things, that we also want to teach them that in this nation, to, the, to a great extent, we've been able to overcome those things through our American system. And that makes our nation exceptional, and that makes our nation great. And that's exactly what we want to do with these standards. And I do not believe that these standards that do this. I believe that these standards will lead to some very bad things being taught in our classrooms. Well, I think it, it kind of locks us in time in the past where these problems were prevalent. But as you said, we've overcome them. And one issue you pushed back on, you said their codes were code words like systematic racism. And you took issue yeah. with that because you said you don't think that's where America is. And I would think, quite frankly, that you are a part of the evidence of that, as was Barack Obama, as is Kamala Harris, that we do not have systemic racism. Do we have racism? Yes, we still have ethnic-driven decisions, but it's not ingrained in our system any longer. Right, right. We, you, you know, when we talk about systemic racism, you talk about it, and I, I've tried to get uh, this point across. Uh, there have been times in this nation where, where racism has been part of the landscape. That is no doubt. Right. There have been racist uh, people and racist entities that have tried to use our system and have taken backhanded attempts with our system to create uh, to create a, a to create municipalities, create states uh, that promote the ideas of white supremacy and put racist policies in place. But the point that I've tried to get across to people is this: the way we have overcome those things is with our American system of government, our founding document, which speaks explicitly about all men being created equal. It speaks explicitly about the uh, God, man's God-given rights, and it talks, you know, all the things that are embodied in our Bill of Rights. Every issue that we've had to tackle in this nation, whether it be slavery or whether it be Jim Crow or whether it be the, the lunch counter being separated or whether it be uh, uh, the rights of people of all stripes to get married, it always boils down to our Constitution. And that is how we do things in this nation. And that's why I, I really believe that our Constitution is the greatest document on earth, because we, that is how we fight back against racism. It's how right. we fight back against bigotry. We use our American system of government, our Constitution, and uh, all the things thereof. So, Lieutenant Governor Robinson, what, what is motivating those on the, the other side of this debate to push these this kind of stuff into the classrooms that uh, really – you know, twist the minds of our kids in their view of America. You know, what I, I really believe is, is driving all this is an anti-American sentiment uh, that's going to push, and I'm going to say this point, going to push a socialist agenda. I really do. Socialism is something that's on the rise in this nation. You, I, I saw it being taught heavily when I was in a, a university as a grown man. Uh, my children uh, uh, witnessed it when they were in high school, and, and several, many, many, many parents have told me that that is ultimately the intent. Well, Lieutenant Governor, I want to thank you for uh, for joining us today, and I want to thank you for standing up and speaking out about this. I know you could. Uh, you could take on other issues, but I think you are absolutely right in focusing on this because I think it's extremely important for the future of our nation. So thanks so much for uh, for being with us today. To find out more about the uh, Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, Mark Robinson, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com, and you can follow the links over. Coming up next, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Been quiet for a while, but uh, now that Joe Biden's in the White House, well, they're making noise, making recommendations. They were silent on the extremists on the left as they were burning down cities last year, but now well, they got all kinds of ideas. Going to talk with Tyler O'Neill next. Don't go away.
The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org/china. Oh man, what's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah. Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org/app and download, or search "Stand Firm" in the App Store. Okay, that's "Stand Firm." Yep, "Stand Firm." How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? The website, TonyPerkins.com. And uh, let me remind you tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, this week's edition of Pray, Vote, Stand. I'll be joined by Colorado Congressman Ken Bach and California Pastor Dr. Jim Garlow. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, PrayVoteStand.org. Okay, um, the, uh, the Southern Impoverished Law Center was silent most of last year as leftists looted and burned cities across America. But uh, now... They are out with a list of recommendations to the Biden administration on how to combat extremist groups on the right. And uh, one of the recommendations is to focus on schools. And uh, given what we see the left's already doing, what might they be proposing? Joining me now is Tyler O'Neill, PJ Media, who has actually written the book on the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, Tyler, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, thanks, Tony. My pleasure. Well, we were just talking to the lieutenant governor of North Carolina uh, about uh, curriculum or standards for curriculum there regarding the critical race theory. Uh, But uh, when I saw this report from the Southern Poverty Law Center that they're making a a list of recommendations, a part of which is focusing on our schools, um, this really got my attention. What's what's, uh, Southern Impoverished Law Center have up their sleeve today? (laughs) <laughs> well, the uh, the center that is not at all impoverished, uh, but morally they the are morally they are impoverished. <laughs> they wouldn't yes. know the truth if it ran over them. <laughs> or, or if uh, somebody published a book about it. But uh, so the SPLC has come out with uh, with a demand that the Biden administration provide funding for the Department of Education to develop a curriculum on structural racism and funding for states to implement their own related initiatives. At the same time, uh, the SBLC's uh, longstanding project called Teaching Tolerance, which is about pushing their far-left agenda and ideology in schools, decided to switch its name uh, to Learning for Justice, and I'll just read a little bit of the uh, the announcement here, because I think it's pretty uh, pretty damning and revealing. Uh, it says we are called as educators, justice advocates, caregivers, and students to reimagine and reclaim our education system so that it is inclusive and just. We must learn, grow, and wield power together in the education system. 
This sounds very similar to some of the other messaging that we're seeing from the left about basically creating activists, that uh, this is designed to create activism in the classrooms that has nothing to do with learning, but has everything to do with the left's political agenda. Yeah, very much so. And it has everything also to do with pushing this narrative of critical race theory, uh, which, you know, as, as I'm sure you've talked about a lot, uh, centers on this notion that American society is so deeply racist, that racism is ingrained in all of our institutions, even though, you know, we have the civil rights amendments, even though we have the progress from the civil rights movement, uh, everything that really is, you know, laws insisting on colorblindness, insisting on treating people according to the content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin, that all of that is actually secretly racist and that we have to reimagine and, you know, deconstruct all of American society to prove the racism and root it out. Um, and it's, it's just a, super, a very pernicious ideology and you see the results of it, as you mentioned, this summer with the Antifa and Black Lives Matter uh, riots that followed after you know, many of the protests evolved into riots. And they claimed the lives of at least 26 people, many of them black, and just devastated downtown communities um, in Kenosha, Portland, Seattle. And many of the businesses that were burned down we're also black-owned, and I mean it's it's particularly dangerous and tragic that you have this this violence inspired by this false vision of America as a fundamentally racist society that actually ends up doing concrete harm to black communities across this country. Yeah, w- w- without uh, question, uh, I, I think I know the answer to this, but. You mentioned the rioting and everything that took place last summer, and I didn't hear much from the SPLC, but we had the event January the 6th, and now they're out with a full-fledged package of reform bills to address extremism only on the right. Does that surprise you? (laughs) No, not at all. I've been following the SPLC for years, and they're myopically focused on the right. So when you see Antifa violence on the streets of Portland and Seattle, when you see uh, Black Lives Matter protests devolve into looting, vandalism, arson, and all sorts of attacks, the SPLC has remained silent. And the SPLC remains silent because they're spreading the ideology that, in, that created those riots. Right. And it's just, and they actually defended Antifa and said it's not a terrorist group. So final question, we're on the way out, but why does the media continue to give them credibility? Because the media likes where they're coming from. It supports a lot of legacy media, supports their far left agenda. Yep, I think you're right. Tyler O'Neill, thanks so much for joining us. As always, great to talk with you. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, Tyler O'Neill. Senior editor of PJ Media, and again, uh, he's written the book on SPLC. You can find out more. Go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, a church in California facing $1 million in fines. The pastor did escape jail time, but the church is now on the hook for a $1 million. He joins us next. Pastor Mike McClure of Calvary Christian Fellowship is here with us. Don't go away. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. 
For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. This is Washington Watch. Again, tune in tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Pray, Vote, Stand. I'll be joined by Congressman Ken Buck and uh, Pastor Dr. Jim Garlow. That's tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, my uh, my next guest, is he's been on before, but there's more information coming out now of uh, a church in California. We're, we're, we've seen this over the last year. California has placed these extreme restrictions on churches due to the coronavirus, and it, it doesn't pe- appear that they're backing off. Uh, San Jose County has levied um, over $1 million in fines on um, Calvary Christian Fellowship in San Jose. Joining me now to talk about this, Senior Pastor Mike McClure. Uh, Pastor Mike, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Tony. Well, last time we talked, you were on your way to court, and um, the the judge did not put you in jail, which some had said that he might, uh, but the church is facing over a million dollars in fines. Give us the latest on uh, what is happening there with your church. We have almost $2 million now in fines with the county for having in-person services, and basically not filling out what they call the social distancing protocol. And you can only fill that out online. And there's no negotiating. You have to check, check pretty much all the boxes. And there's just things that don't apply to us or questions that we have. And we can't, you know, talk to them or negotiate that. So at this point, um, the court is withholding some personal fines against the church. And he took some away. You know, the judge was, was I would say, gracious in a lot of ways. I think he really heard our heart and what we're trying to do that we're not just some rebellious church, but we really want to minister to people. We care about people. And he's uh, holding the fines against me personally. I have $37,000, and another pastor here, uh, Carson, has uh, $27,000. So he's given us to the 19th of this month to have more of a change, as he put it, in uh, behavior. So he put us back to the county, and, and I asked him if he would, you know, uh, help us work with the county. And you know, that's not his role, he said. And so he said, we got to just follow what the county guidelines are. And that means not meeting inside. We can have, I believe, uh, today's rules are 200 people, no singing, have to wear a mask. Uh, and, you know, that's not church. That's, to me, it's cold outside. It rained on Sunday here. So 
you know, you're, you're in 30 degree weather, it's raining, that's church for the county as far as they're concerned. So it's, it's really kind of either we, we don't have church or uh, we do and we, we just stand our ground and say, look, we, we're going to meet because this is a necessary uh, thing. It's, it's, a, it's my responsibility as a pastor to, to shepherd the flock of God. And uh, it, it, it's a right, you know, it's a, we have a First Amendment right. So uh, we'll see what happens. We have a few more weeks, and then we'll probably be back before the judge, even though he said he didn't want to see me again. <laughs> but, uh, Pastor Mike, you, you, in your explanation of this, you, you went further in talking about, you know, not, and I think it's very important what you said earlier. This is, we're not just trying to be a rebellious church. We're trying to work with the, the county. But the point you made, and this is so true, especially when we see, the record numbers of suicides that are taking place across the country. We're seeing an epidemic of depression. And, and you said, look, we're meeting and we're ministering to people and we're addressing the mental health issues and this, the stress that is coming from unemployment and the businesses that are affected. So you're, you're doing ministry. It's not just singing in the church. It's not just preaching the word as important as that is. But these are meeting real needs in the lives of people who are being damaged by the other fallout from the coronavirus. We had someone walk in our office a while back, and he actually works for the county. He is a counselor for their suicide hotline, and he was going to commit suicide. He came into the church. He received Christ. He's been baptized. His life was transformed. He even uh, is helping us with our case. We know that there's 14,000 phone calls that the county's gotten in one of their highest months, and and they go unanswered, according to, you know, the guy now in our church, because they've laid everybody off. And the number one need for these people who are filled with anxiety and fear, looking for hope and peace and an answer, is is to have an in-person uh, conversation, and they're not providing that. And so we, we know this, and we shared this with the judge and asking, hey, can you just utilize this in some way? Can we help? But the, the answer from the county is no. And they don't want our help. They just, you know, really, I, I just believe this is a spiritual attack against the yes. church. Yes. They don't want us to worship. When we brought up, hey, what's what's the social distancing protocol look like? What's your requirement for masks? Let's work on that. Let's hear what you guys have to say. When they brought up worship, they got visibly angry and ended the phone call or the Zoom call and basically said, we'll see you in court. If you're going to sing, this conversation's over with, and we're going to take you the full extent of the law. And that's what they've done. And it's really about worship. And I think of I think about the Jericho March. I think about um, you know Second Chronicles twenty with Jehoshaphat putting the worship team out front. How powerful right. that is. Yeah. And when we gather, it's just supernatural. I have people every week just visibly uh, weeping throughout the service. They will come up to me afterwards and say, "Thank you so much. I had no idea how depressed or." So with anxiety, I've been, I mean, they knew, they knew that they're not doing well, but to see how far they have fallen by not going to church, how important they tell me week after week. And I was able to tell us the judge, like, look, these people's lives are on the line. We have several people who would say they wouldn't be alive if the church wasn't open. And I had one particular, uh, uh, she's an attorney. She stood before a judge. And so I was able to say, hey, she wanted me to give you a message. You know who she is. And she says, tell, tell uh, you know, Judge Irwin, that this is like bread and water. To not let me be in church, Zoom does not do it. It's like watching a fireplace, you know, on, on TV. You have right. to be there in person, and it's, it's supernatural. So, Well, and, and Scripture makes it very clear. That's what we are to do, to, uh, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, even more so as we see the day approaching. Um, Pastor Mike, I want to thank you for joining us today, giving us an update. We want to continue to track this case. Hopefully there might be some relief soon from the Supreme Court. I know there's a case making its way through, um, but uh, we will join you in prayer. And I want to thank you for uh, for standing firm and speaking truth, but speaking in love and doing it in a compassionate way, because you're absolutely right. This is a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Thank you for your prayers. Pray for our, our judge and county. I told him that. I said, we love you guys. We've invited them all to church. And uh, that's the goal is to get the gospel out. In Acts chapter 4, you know, one thing that just occurred to me is that when the disciples were being persecuted, they didn't pray for, you know, the death of their enemies at all. They didn't even pray for protection or freedom or rights. What they prayed for was boldness to that's preach right. God's word. That's one of my favorite passages. 
Well, Pastor Mike, I look forward to being with you uh, this coming spring. Going to be out there with you. Thanks so much for standing firm. We appreciate your uh, your your example. Appreciate you, Tony. Thank you so much, and we're looking forward to having you. All right, Pastor Mike McClure out in uh, San Jose, California. You know, what he says is very true. We've got to keep this in mind, um, that this is a spiritual battle. And I, I, I go to, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, you know, I like to quote that passage, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, but against powers, against uh, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And, and, and while we, we have to wrestle in this arena of public policy, we've got to take a stand against these things. We, we cannot... And I, I, I so appreciate what Pastor Mike was saying. They're praying for the judge, and they told the judge they were praying for it. And we need to, to keep that in focus, that these are individuals that, for whatever reason, are being, you know, they're willingly taking these steps. I'm not saying that they're not doing it themselves, but we need to know that their minds, they're not seeing their eyes are closed, as Scripture says. And we need to pray that their eyes would be opened as to what they're doing and the, the consequences of the decisions that they are making. Um, so keep that in mind. Yes, we need to stand. Yes, we need to speak with clarity and with conviction, but also with a heart of compassion for those that are on the other side of these issues because they need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, as I mentioned, um, there is a case that's, uh, I believe, making its way through the Supreme Court that could address some of these issues with churches, and quite frankly, it could not come soon enough. The Biden administration is nominating and putting in place individuals in key spots, particularly in the Department of Justice, in the Civil Rights Division, that has actually been advocating for churches under the Trump administration. And in this case, they've made statements in the past that make it quite clear they would be targeting churches. Joining me now with more on this is FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies, we have Catherine Beck-Johnson. Catherine, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. Happy to be here. All right, let's start first. Um, I, I want to get into the DOJ Civil Rights Division and, and, and why this is bad news for religious liberty. But first, some, some possible good news. Are we anticipating something coming from the Supreme Court as it pertains to churches and their, their ability to meet? We are definitely on the lookout for the Supreme Court to issue a ruling in a Harvest Rock Church case coming out of California. They sued, and they actually, in the Ninth Circuit, did strike down a person limit in the churches and said that they had to go to a percentage cap. So that certainly is a win for us. Um, However, there still is a percentage cap, and there is also a ban on singing that the Ninth Circuit did uphold. So we're waiting to see what the Supreme Court will issue in this case. Well, I I actually spoke at Harvest Church uh, a few months back, and I tell you what, the singing was strong, um, and folks were doing quite well and excited to be together. And I, I think... You know, those churches that are exercising this rights, hopefully with this court, the new Supreme Court, that uh, they will get some relief from the court and that will send a message to uh, some of these government officials, including uh, a nominee for the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. T- tell, uh, tell our listeners about this nomination. So President Biden has nominated Kristen Clark to lead the Civil Rights Division, and this is extremely troubling for conservatives, Christians. When Attorney General Jeff Sessions launched his very successful Religious Liberty Task Force, she took to Twitter saying that this is shameful and that it's just making it easier for people to use religion to mask their discriminatory goals. So it really is quite dangerous that she's perpetrating the lie that religious adherents are just bigoted, hateful people out here to target other people. And it shows a lack of understanding that we are people of faith who have love and compassion and we're simply taking a stand for the truth. Well, I, I think people need to also understand the, the sea change that this presents for the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. Now, uh, we had members of the Department of Justice on radio quite frequently where they were actually going out across the country and filing uh, letters of interest. They were advocating on behalf of churches that were being uh, 
unduly restricted in their ability to meet. And so now we're, 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 that's behind us from the Trump administration. Now we have an administration where that same department is going to be headed up by someone who has expressed outright hostility toward churches. That's a big change. That's exactly right. Previously, as you said, the President Trump's Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, I mean, they filed statements of interest in churches in Colorado and D.C. and Virginia. They were very courageous and very aggressive in defending the churches during the government overreach for coronavirus. But not only that, they when I say courageous, I really mean courageous. I mean, they stood with Jack Phillips in Masterpiece Cake Shop. They filed an amicus brief supporting him. So they didn't shy away from some of the most controversial of cases. They really stood by the First Amendment, stood by the religious adherents who were being targeted by the cancel culture, by the left. And they, they were proud to do so. And so when you say this is a huge shift, it really is. This wasn't an administration that was blue warm on the issues. It's not as though, oh, they weren't hostile, but they weren't really a friend. They really were strong, courageous leaders on this. So this is a huge shift. Yeah, that's a really good point, Catherine, because I think, you know, some people lump everything under the president. And and, and the president gave the green light to the protection of religious freedom. I mean, I had those conversations with him. No doubt he was the final decision maker. But what really made the Trump administration successful, especially on what I would say the religious liberty issue and the sanctity of human life issue, is that he had people in those positions who were committed and passionate about these issues. And, and they worked hard, as you said, they were uh, fearless in advancing the sanctity of life and the protection of our, our first freedom. It was remarkable. It really was. It was something really exciting to see as as those of us that work on these issues, to know that we have the government behind us. It's incredibly powerful before the Supreme Court to have the Department of Justice, the Solicitor General's office, say we are on your side and we argue before the court on behalf of the United States government. That's really persuasive for the Supreme Court. That shows that this isn't just political. This is really the stance of the United States government. And so it really was very powerful for our issues and for protections in an increasingly hostile environment. It absolutely was. Catherine Beck-Johnson, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. To find out more, you can go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. And, and, you know, for those naysayers who are just, uh, you know, Trump couldn't do anything right. The people he put in place, the old saying, personnel is policy. This administration had more committed believers and conservatives than any in my lifetime. And the record that they amassed on these fundamental issues speaks for itself. Elections have consequences. They really do. And unfortunately, I think the, uh, this administration is going to amass a record, but it's not going to be a positive one. We need to be praying. In fact, join us tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and that's what we're going to do. PrayVoteStand.org. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, founded of Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.